Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's good to see you. If you don't know me, my name is uh, Ryan. I am not the main preacher. I am the youth minister here. Brent has graciously allowed me uh, to preach and proclaim the word with you this morning. And I'm going to tell you about, I did a little, I was a little mischievous because I was supposed to preach in like January. We were, we were a little earlier on in Romans. And I was like, oh, I, I can't preach that week. We've got the, the New Year's lock-in. He was like, okay, we'll just preach next week. And I was like, oh, I can't, I can't preach that week. I'm getting engaged. But the, the truth was I really just wanted to preach Romans 12 because I love Romans 12. So I just kept putting it off, putting it off. And then it like, comes to this week, and I take the youth you know, to this conference all weekend. And I'm like, no, I can do that. I can make it work. So uh, you will join me uh, in Romans 12, if you have your Bible, uh, the words will also be on the screen, as we'll be camping out all uh, morning. Now, there have been a lot of movies uh, in, in uh, our culture that have kind of shaped how we view Christianity or think about Christianity. You think of things like um, the Ten Commandments, um, the Jesus film, or Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth those both, both came out in the 70s. Um, think about the Passion of the Christ, but there's one movie that has sort of invaded Christianity, and it's Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. I don't know how many times I've had to tell students, you don't have to pray to six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus. I don't know how many times I've heard youth pastors be like, dear Lord, thank you for my smoking hot wife, you know? Like, we, like it, it, it has invaded our culture, this, this movie. And there's one scene in particular where, if you don't know the movie, Will Ferrell plays Ricky Bobby, and he, he, he wants to be a NASCAR driver. And in the, in the opening scenes of the movie, he's kind of achieved this goal. He becomes a, a NASCAR driver. He wins his first race, and uh, his career sort of explodes onto the scene. And he's, they're doing the, the after interview after the, the race, and you know they've done the champagne and stuff. And he's on camera, and you like zoom in a little closer. Is that as close as it goes? He gets on camera, and he's like, I don't know what to do with my hands. And so this whole interview, they're trying to be like, talking about his NASCAR career, right? And he's like, I don't, I don't know what to do with my hands. Which is, fun. it's a funny scene, but when we read Romans, we read through the first 11 chapters, and we have this thought. It's like, Paul, awesome. Great theology, great doctrine. I don't know what to do with my hands. What do, I, what do I do? And so Romans 12 is Paul starting to explain, here is what the gospel is going to propel us towards. Here is the action you're going to take. Here is what you're going to do with your hands. So read with me, if you will, in Romans chapter 12, uh, starting in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but... To think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving to the one who teaches in his teaching, to the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. 
Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another in brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil good. Pray. Father, we're thankful for this book that you have revealed yourself to us, that God, we can know who you are, and we can know who we are in response to your character and your action in the world. So God, encourage us this morning with your word. Challenge us. God, make us look more like Jesus. Make us look more like the community that he is building because of what we have learned from your word. Not from my words, but God, from you. Bless us this morning. Teach us. Mold us. In your son's name we pray. So, Paul has given us this sort of theological crash course all through 1 through 11. He's been teaching us all of this right belief. He's, he's been teaching, all of 1 through 11 is, is what I'm going to call this morning gospel doctrine. Gospel doctrine. So here we are just a little bit in the sermon, and I've I'm, I'm already got to define some terms. So, first, big question. We went to a whole conference about it this weekend. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? So we, we say it a lot. It means a lot of things. Uh, here's a very short, brief definition. The gospel is the good news that Jesus has died as a sacrifice for our sins and resurrected three days later that we might be reconciled to God. That is what the gospel is. So gospel and then doctrine. What is, what is doctrine? Doctrine simply means a set of beliefs. This is a set of beliefs. So when we say, when we're talking this morning about gospel doctrine, just think what we believe as a church about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul all through these 11 chapters has been saying, here's gospel doctrine. Now, in chapter 12, he's turning his focus away from doctrine and to action, right? How do we live in light of this gospel? And, and being honest, reading this for the first time, it can feel like a lot to do. Like, Paul, that's, that's a lot of things I have to do. Uh, after learning about the gospel, like maybe you could just make it a little bit shorter, maybe just like a little bit fewer things to do. But what I don't want you to hear, this, this is a danger of this text, is that you read it and you think, okay, here's a checklist. I'm going to load this into my notes app on my phone as a checklist so I can tap it and be like, that's done, that's done, that's done. I've got to love genuinely. I've got to live in peace. I've got to have harmony. I've got to be generous. I've got to use my gifts, right? All these things I've got to do. I don't want you to think of it like that. And uh, actually, I just 
quick sidebar, I don't like, so the, the little subheadings in your Bible, they're not inspired, and I don't like this subheading, marks of a true Christian. I hate the idea that we think, oh, I'm not a true Christian if I don't act like this, if I don't hit all the right points. But rather, I think what Paul is saying is it is an invitation, saying you know all of these things about God, now come and live this way with me. It's like when, has anyone ever done an escape room? We did an escape room in Louisville, and Brent and I did an escape room. I mean, like, I was much younger and much lighter. Uh, <laughs> and we did this escape room, and it was in a casino. And there's, so spoiler alert, if you're ever going to do a breakout casino, plug your ears. But there's this moment where there's been all these mirrors showing up all around the room. And so you have to go, and you had this thing, and you had to align the mirrors correctly, right? You had to go walk around the room. Sorry, camera people. You like walk around the room, align all these mirrors, and then when you press this button, it shot a laser. And the laser hit all these mirrors and like crisscrossed around the room, and then it hit this painting right in the eye. This is this painting right here. And a secret door opened up. And so when something like that happens, when a secret door opens a door you didn't know was there before when it opens up like Brent and I weren't just like oh and like went to do something else no this secret door opened and we're like what's in there what is that and in the same way Paul in chapters 1 through 11 is aligning these sort of gospel mirrors right and he's saying here's who Jesus is and he presses the button and there's this this door opens there's this invitation to step through and we have to go in we can't help but go in and live a, a life like he has outlined here. So in the same way, the, the good news of the gospel, the gospel doctrine is inviting us to a response that we have to, we can't help but enter into. Gospel doctrine always results in gospel living. Gospel doctrine always results in gospel living. When we rightly understand the gospel, when the mirrors are aligned, when we really take what Paul is telling us about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. It can't help. We can't help it but change the way that we live. In theological terms, if you're a real theological person, orthodoxy must always lead to orthopraxy. What we believe must always lead to what we practice. And this is a really important thing for two reasons. Two really important reasons. First, our actions in life must always reflect the gospel that we believe, right? If someone says they believe something and then live contrary to those beliefs, we would probably think that person doesn't believe that very much because they don't even live like that. But even more so, even bigger, when, when we say we believe the gospel doctrine, but we don't live uh, according to the gospel, it's like we're committing heresy, we're saying, I believe these things, but we're not going to live according to them. Now, it's not like heresy of the head, of like belief, right? Like not believing in the bodily resurrection or believing that, Jesus, that there's actually three gods and they're kind of united in some way. Like we would say those things are heresy. So it's not heresy of the head, but it's heresy of the hands. Our actions do not align with our beliefs. See, our horizontal relationships must always align to match the vertical grace we have been given by God. Second, the, the other second, the second reason this is really important is it is the best apologetic that we have while engaging the world. When I say apologetics, it's not, oh, I'm, I'm sorry for being a Christian. Apologetics means it's making a case for why Christianity is true. 
And so when we build this kind of new, true community that God has uh, invited us to build, everyone, everyone on earth would look at a community if it hit all of these results, lived them out perfectly. Anyone from anywhere on earth would look at that community and say, I want in. I want to be a part of that. The, the community outlines in this text, it's, it's, it's genuinely loving. It's peaceful. It's honoring. Everybody knows your name. They're always glad you came. Okay, that was the Cheers theme song, and some of you caught it. But it's kind of the same thing, right? It's like even as far back as the first century, Christians in the first century in Rome, when Rome was, was attacking Christians, they knew we have to, if the, if the gospel needs, is going to reach people, if the kingdom is going to expand, then we have to show people that it's good that we're here. We have to make our community a better place. They created a place that people wanted to be because the gospel does not create perpetual spectators, but it mobilizes us to make a difference for others. The gospel does not create perpetual spectators, it mobilizes us to make a difference for others. When we become a Christian, we don't just stand back and watch the game. Like, oh, that person came to Jesus. Great. That person's living in sin. That's bad. We don't just stand back and watch. No, we're in the game. Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. We're in the game. So Paul is going to give us a few ways that gospel doctrine flows through us and invites us to a new life and a new kind of community. And I'm going to break it down. It's going to sound like a lot. We're going to move through it. Six results of gospel doctrine. They're not marks. They're not checklists. They're results. It's an inevitable result. Almost think of it like a factory, right? Very crudely, right? If the gospel doctrine is all the instructions, right, to make something in a factory, the only thing that can come out is what the instructions told us to make. Unless you're me putting together Ikea furniture. Then I always mess it up. So, six results of gospel doctrine. I'm going to give them to you up front, but we're going to come back to all of them. We walk humbly. We seek unity. We serve totally. We love genuinely. We honor competitively. And we live peacefully. Those are the, those are the six results. So, we start out and we are going to walk humbly. Paul starts here. Because none of these other results can happen unless we start to humble ourselves. Or, I love how Paul puts it. He says, uh, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Right? Which means, actually, like, there's a good level at which to think of ourselves. We can think of ourselves too lowly, but we also really tend to think of ourselves too highly. And, of course, this is a natural reaction, a natural progression of the gospel. Because we, Paul, according to Paul, we were dead in our sins. We were, we were dead. We weren't dying. We were dead. And we wanted nothing to do with God. We were enemies of God. And in spite of us, not because we did anything, but God chose to save us and redeem us and unite us to him. It's the most humbling news in the world. God, I didn't do anything. Why me? The other results can't take root until you begin to let go of everything that you want and start to elevate other people. A favorite pastor of mine, his name is Ray Ortland. He, he pastors in, in Nashville. He gauges humility this way. He says, when you walk into a room, is your first thought, here I am? Or is your first thought, there you are? When you come into a room, do you think, here I am? Or do you think, there 
you are. Because when we are found in Christ, when we believe the doctrine that Paul has laid out, we are called to be people who see, value, and think of others always before ourselves. Which is a radical idea in America in 2022. We were doing a study and we were talking about how individualism has been on the rise, has been the primary notion of Americanism for, for almost 75 years now. That as our square footage of our houses has gotten bigger, our relationships with our neighbors has gotten smaller. Our lack of humility is why almost 70% of adult men report having no close friends. Zero close friends. The number of people, there's a study done that says the number of people that we, our families, can call in a crisis has shrunk dramatically. All because at some level, we're thinking of ourselves too highly. I don't need those people. I really just need myself. Our culture celebrates everything is about you, you, you. But this new gospel living, this new gospel culture is a counterculture movement. And Paul is saying it's less about you than you've ever thought possible. C.S. Lewis tells us that humility isn't thinking, about, isn't thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less and there is a typo in your in your worship guide who types those things up it's me humility isn't about thinking less of yourself it's about thinking of yourself less our gospel living must always begin by putting the needs of others above the needs of the self it's not about doing what's best for me or most comfortable for me or most financially responsible for me it's about others the the truth of the gospel eradicates me from the equation. Every choice we make is focused out on the other. And I'll be honest, sometimes this kind of gospel living can result in you being a doormat. It can result in people taking advantage of you and walking all over you. But think about this. No one has sinned against you as egregiously as you have sinned against a holy God. And he has forgiven you much. He he forgives when you sin against him. When we were were dead in our sin, right, we, we didn't even, it's not like we were just ignoring God. We were actually like kicking the dirt on the doormat of God. God, I don't want anything to do with you. So there are times that we might be treated as a doormat that is what true humility leads to. So let's remember who we are, who God has now made us in this new life, and let's walk humbly in light of that good news. So after humility, Paul then calls us to seek unity. So he, he t- calls us not to think of ourselves too highly, but then he starts to tell us about these distinctions we have amongst each other. So uh, each according to the measure of faith, God has assigned. Uh, We have many members. We don't all have the same function. But though we are many, so Paul points out all these things. We're we're different, we're different, we're different. But it's always punctuated by the fact that we are one body. Christ is creating unity in diversity. Gospel living is about creating unity in diversity. We live in a world that is obsessed with this idea of diversity. Diversity. Racial diversity, gender diversity, socioeconomic diversity. 
the Bible, we need to be careful because the Bible recognizes that diversity is a good thing. Paul tells us that we've been given these gifts individually by grace. He's recognizing the diversity of every individual person in that body. But counterculturally, Jesus is creating, uh, though we are all different, it's not marked by our difference, it's marked by our similarity, namely one similarity, Jesus. So despite we're all different, we're all built, built different, right? The thing kids say. Despite we're all different, diverse, have different gifts, we are all used in the service of one body. Because gospel doctrine tells us that Christ is saving every tribe, tongue, and nation, and we are to be unified into one family, the family of God. So gospel living is about finding unity with people unlike ourselves. Because see, it's, it's easy to be friends with people who are like you. It's easy to be friends with people that look like you or make similar amounts of money than you or believe similar political things to you. But the gospel is for all. It's for people who are alike and unalike. When we are united in Christ, when we are in this one family of God, we can celebrate each other's blackness and each other's whiteness. And we can come together in richness and in poverty. And we can recognize differences all while striving for one goal. The gospel proves it. The life of Jesus proves it. Jesus is calling his disciples and he calls this guy over here who's an employee of the Roman government. He's a tax collector. And then he calls this guy over here who wants to overthrow it with violence. And when those two guys met, it was probably pretty awkward. Like, oh, you're here? But I thought Jesus thought, but I thought Jesus thought that Jesus was thinking bigger than either of them could ever imagine. And when they saw the kingdom that Jesus was, was, was building, it wasn't about the Roman government. It was about the eternal kingdom, and they could link arms and join in unity together for a larger cause. To build, his, to build his church. And the same is true for us. We all have different gifts. We all think differently. We all look different. We have different experiences, different socioeconomic classes. We have different abilities, right? But we all gather, like right now, together, doing our part to fulfill the mission of expanding God's kingdom. Which brings us to our third result of gospel doctrine is to serve totally. We seek unity and we serve totally. Paul doesn't point out all of this diversity for diversity's sake. He doesn't say like, yeah, we're going to celebrate diversity because look at verse 6. What does he say? Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Right? It's, he's saying you have gifts. You've all been gifted in so many ways, so let's serve together. It's an invitation to get in on the good work that God is doing in that church. He's calling each of us, according to our individual gifts, to their utmost ability. That's why he says uh, prophecy in proportion to their faith and service and serving to the one who teaches and is teaching. He's saying totally, with everything that gift gives you, I want you to serve 100%. It's always a good feeling to find a place where you belong. Kind of like the cheers bar, right? Norm. It's always good to find a place where you belong. Uh, uh, a YMCA, right? a book club, a D&D &D club. But gospel doctrine teaches us that church is not about belonging. Church actually gives us a purpose. 
It's not just a place where we belong. It's a place where we have purpose. The church is a place where every member, if you are a member of our church, you have a purpose in our body. And we are actually weaker if you're not exercising your service, your your gifts. You've been given gifts. Use them, is what Paul is saying. Our purpose in life, purpose-driven life. You know, we're always wandering around looking for what our purpose in life is. What's the meaning of life? Here's our purpose in life. You ready? I'm going to give you the answer to the meaning of life. Our purpose in life is serving God and his people. Our purpose in life is serving God and his people. And the reason we can know that is because in Luke 22, Jesus tells his disciples what his purpose on earth. He says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That was his purpose, to give his life as a ransom and to serve his people. So as we as imitators of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, that we will turn us not to our own needs or our own intake, but rather it turns us to service of others. We're propelled to serve. We actually long to serve. God, I want to serve your church because you have served me. And Paul is saying, look, you have these gifts. God has blessed you with gifts. Use them and serve in your church fully to the glory of God. So we, church, here's a challenge. We, every week, as the gathered people of God, should walk in and think this. I'm not here to be served. I'm here to serve. I'm not here to be served. I'm here to serve. We should be so focused on serving this body together, using our gifts to the fullest extent that no one should ever feel overwhelmed, no one should ever feel alone, no one should ever feel burned out. Because look around. Look at all these servants. The work cannot be overwhelming to us if we all commit to serving totally. And because of that, we can all serve joyfully. Fourth, Paul's really going to start getting into it now. But these next two are probably my favorite. It should be a wellspring of encouragement to us. Not conviction, but encouragement, right? Because we, because we understand the vast love of God, this vast story of God's grace and love for us, that turns us to loving genuinely. Hear that for just a moment. Love genuinely. Now, loving genuinely is not just having gospel doctrine and then being nice or being polite. It's not saying, hi, how are you? How are you doing this morning? Hey, good to see you. Those things are good. That's not what genuine love looks like. This is what genuine love looks like. This is how you know you're genuinely loving someone. Have you ever been eating at a dinner table and you're all talking kind of about, you know, like movies or sports or whatever, something like, and then someone says something real? It's something they're struggling with or something that hurt them. You can feel the tension in the air. And instead of running away from that topic, you press in. That's, that's genuine love. To love genuinely is to love fully. Every person on earth has, has two basic desires, to be fully known or to be fully seen and to be fully loved. So I I want people to know the real me, and I want people to love that me. And this is what Paul means by love genuinely. He means fully know someone and fully love them. But sometimes 
We sacrifice one for the other. We sacrifice being fully known so we might be fully loved, right? Or on the flip side, we sacrifice being fully loved so people can know the real us. And I can prove that this is true. Now, I've got two questions. This is interactive. One, if you can hear my voice right now and you can raise your hand, I'd like you to raise your hand. Good, good, first test. Now I know all of you can raise your hand, have the ability. So here's this question, be honest. Keep them up. No, no, you can put them down when I ask the question because I'm going to have people look around. I understand that was confusing. Okay, uh, honesty here. By show of hands, who in this room has been asked this question at church and lied about it? You ready? How are you doing this morning? How many of you have lied about that question in this room? Look around. This isn't surprising. It's human nature to not want to be seen as messed up. It's human nature to not want to be seen as broken. But guess what? This scripture tells us we're all broken. We're all messed up. So we don't have to fake it around each other. There's no shame in being broken. There's no shame in being messed up. We all agree everybody's broken. There is no room for shame or embarrassment in the gospel because we know that our sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus. There is now, therefore, no condemnation, not from God and certainly not from any of us. In order to love genuinely, we must let all that shame fall away. In order to love genuinely, we must let all shame fall away. See, gospel doctrine leads to the end of embarrassment. It leads to the end of shame. And we can actually start looking each other in the eye and loving genuinely. Our church, this room, our gathered body, according to what we believe, should be the safest place to appear broken. the safest place. And church, we must, if we want to live out this gospel doctrine, we want to live out the truth of who Jesus was and what he has done, we must be a safe place to confess sin. If we can't confess sin to one another, we can never genuinely love one another because we can never truly know one another. But not only do we love genuinely, but we love each other with brotherly affection, with familial affection. These people around us are our brothers and sisters. I'm going to get to see my family in a few weeks. I haven't seen them in a long time, and I'm going to throw my arms around them, and I'm going to laugh, and we're going to catch up, and we're going to celebrate, and I'm not going to be worried if I look dumb, or if I look silly, or if I sound right, because they're mine, and I'm theirs. That's the sort of affection we should have for one another. The same is true for us because of this gospel doctrine. Every time we see someone coming through that door, our eyes should widen with excitement and say, brother, I haven't seen you in a week. Sister, I haven't seen you in a week. We should be proud of one another. We should be encouraging one another. Encourage means literally give courage. I'm, I'm going to give my courage to you. We can be this kind of new community, this new kind of family, because we have been adopted into God's family. Simply put, when we walk out of these doors every week, we should have two thoughts. 
We should have two thoughts when we leave church every week. Wow. It's amazing that God loves me, knowing all of my brokenness. It's amazing. God, the creator of the universe, loves you, not a future version of you. He loves you sitting right there in your sin, in your brokenness, in your hurt. He loves you. It's amazing. But the second thought should be, wow, it's amazing that they love me, knowing all of my brokenness. Fifth, we honor competitively. For all you sports fans out there, we honor competitively. I love competition. We all love competition. Here's a biblically mandated competition. You want to compete? You want to do it to the glory of God? Here you go. Verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. We don't often think about honor in our modern day. We don't live in an honor-shame culture, but I recently read this story that helped me kind of wrap my, my mind around what uh, honor is. So there are these two guys, can't remember what it was, they were running for prime minister in England. One of them's name was William Gladstone, one of them's name was Benjamin Disraeli. And they were at a, they were at a dinner, it was sort of like, you know, hoity-toity English dinner, and this woman named Jenny Jerome was there, and Jenny Jerome was of note because she is the mother of Winston Churchill. And someone asked her, came up to Winston Churchill's mom and said, hey, what did you think of the candidates? And she said, well, I'm not going to do a British accent. She said, well, after sitting next to Gladstone, I thought he was the cleverest man in all of England. But when I sat with Disraeli, I left feeling like I was the cleverest woman. That's honor. To show honor is to make whoever is in your eye line the most important person in the world. A VIP. This goes right along hand in hand with humility. To honor someone else means you have to bring yourself low. We have to actually look at people and recognize the good that they have done in our midst. You are valuable to us. That is why one of our core values is everyone is valuable. There is something to honor in every person. A recent movie said, family is like a constellation and everybody gets to shine. Everyone gets to shine in our church. Everyone is valuable. Everyone's full of worth and they are worthy of honor. Now this is not niceness, this is not politeness, and this is most certainly not flattery. We're not lying. And we sort of understand what honor is like because um, we do it at a specific time. I want you to tell me what you think this sounds like. Made up person. Uh, Bob was a great man. He, uh, he loved and he led his family well. He honored the Lord. He served church faithfully and he will be missed. What does that sound like? A funeral. We're great at showing honor. The problem is we always wait until the recipient is dead. But because of gospel doctrine, we know that our brothers and sisters in Christ, they are heirs to an eternal kingdom. They are being glorified into a new creation. They're being sanctified. And at the very least, if they're not in Christ, they're made in the image of God. They are due honor. It's the flip side of confessing sin. In confessing sin, we reveal the worst parts about ourselves. But in honor, we talk about the best parts 
of our brothers and sisters to them and to other people. We celebrate all the things that everyone has been doing right. We, we simply talk to people and we celebrate God is telling a beautiful story with your life. God is really shaping you into a woman who loves God or a, or a, a man who loves God. God, you're really growing in your faith. By honoring one another, we get a glimpse of our glorification in Christ. What if we did this? What if we as a church, we all decided we're going to honor people to their face and we're going to honor people behind their back more than we ever spoke negatively about them or joked about them to their face? What if we said, instead of telling a a joke that's like a little bit insulting to try to get a laugh, what if we said, it's been an encouragement to me? Or what if instead of, oh, did you hear about this person? She's got this going on. What if instead of that we said, man, did you hear about her? She's really persevering in the faith right now. She deserves respect and honor. We should honor one another. What if after service, one of you adults came up to one of these students and you said, thank you for how you worshiped this morning. It was really encouraging to me. I'm proud of everything the Lord's doing in your life. Think of the meaning that would have. Or what if we looked at a mom in our midst and they said, and we said, I see that you're striving to raise a godly family that the world so desperately needs. That is honorable. I respect you. Or it's going to be something small. I saw you taking notes. I'm so thankful the Lord's working. Or say something big like, I've seen you serving in the tech booth week after week after week. You're so generous with your time, and that is honorable. What if we went up to our pastor who preached so faithfully week after week after week, and instead of complaining about, it's too cold in here, or complaining about, oh, there wasn't enough chairs, or whatever, we said, Pastor, thank you for the preparation that you did. It really affected my life. You deserve honor. Because of the gospel, we can be a church who honors more than we criticize, and it should be who we are in Christ. Now, lastly, live peacefully. Live peacefully. This is a lot of it. I'm going to reread these last few verses starting in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, nor associate, or do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, and but give, I can't read right now. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These verses unlike the previous ones, have to do with how we interact with those who are our enemies, those who are doing evil to us, those who are persecuting us. And what is Paul's answer over and over and over again? 
Bless them and live peaceably with them. Why? Why should we do this? Because according to gospel doctrine, we were enemies of God. But even when we were enemies, he showed grace and forgiveness, reconciled us to him, and now we have peace. We have peace with God. We can have peace with each other. We are called as Christians to be people of peace. Christians don't stir up conflict because we know how the final conflict ends. We don't have to defend our positions because we stand on the ultimate foundation in the person of Jesus Christ. We know what the truth is. We don't have to seek out vengeance for ourselves because we know a perfect judge rules over all of the universe. We don't have to drag some political opponent or someone else down with a joke because we serve the highest king who can never be brought low. If there is one counterculture culture practice you take from this sermon, it is be a person who is marked by peace. Because hear me, church, people will leave in droves if we become embroiled in the conflicts of the world. If our family is more defined by arguing than we are by peace and mercy and love, then we are committing heresy of the hands. And people will leave us. Our lives, our social media feeds, they should not be full of arguing and anger and fear. But if we want to live in light of the gospel, then we should always be lowering the temperature, finding common ground and saying, I don't know that I agree with you. I respect you. And I love you. In Hebrew, there is this word, shalom. And it's interesting, we can't, we can't really understand or comprehend the full meaning, the full weight of the word shalom. It means all of these things, peace, tranquility, wholeness, prosperity, uh, fulfillment. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful word. It's a great word. And, and, and it's really the thing that we're all seeking out in life. I want to be fulfilled. I want to be at peace. I want to be whole. I want to be tranquil. Because we have been reconciled with God, we can be reconciled with one another. We have shalom with God. Fully seen, fully known, fully loved by him. We can have peace. There's peace between us and God. And now we can build shalom together. We have shalom with God and now we can build shalom together. Ray Orland, who I mentioned earlier, he, he talks about it like this. Imagine that the world outside is, is an ocean. And the ocean is raging. We can feel that. With political discourse, with, with COVID, with all of these things going on, the cultural ocean is raging. The winds are howling. The waves are crashing. And there is, seems like there's no escape. Everywhere you look, it's on, the, it's on the news. It's in the newspaper. It's on social media. It's in my sermon. I keep talking about it, right? But imagine there's this ocean of rage. And our body, our church, is an island of shalom. That you could come here be known, be loved, and have peace. Because of this mysterious and infinite grace of God, shalom is a reality for us. He is inviting us into perfect peace and harmony with one another. So to close, I want to remind you, this is not a checklist. These aren't marks of a true Christian. These aren't the requirements to get into heaven, right? It's an invitation from Paul to step 
through the door into not just a new community, but a new kind of community, a community unlike the world has ever seen. It's not an edict. It's an aspiration that we should all long to live up to. And here's why. We can walk humbly because our King Jesus left his throne, humbled himself, came into the sin and the muck and the brokenness of the world for you. We can seek unity because our King Jesus called all kinds to follow him. Conservatives, liberals, anarchists, different skin colors, economic classes, differently abled. He made one family that's greater than the sum of its parts. We can serve totally because our King Jesus gave all of himself down to the last breath for people that mocked and scorned him. We can love genuinely because our King Jesus loved us while we were dead, while he were his enemies. We actively worked against his kingdom and he genuinely loved us. We can honor competitively, competitively because Jesus always gave attention to the least of these. And one day, he's going to raise our resurrected bodies. We're going to be glorified. We're going to be perfect. And we're going to reign by his side. And that is worthy of honor. And we can live peacefully. Because on a cross, 2,000 years ago, our King Jesus was killed. And in a borrowed tomb, breath returned to his lungs. And his heart starting to, started to beat. And he made peace between a perfect God and a hopeless people. Jesus has opened a secret door. Love, honor, peace, they all wait on the other side. But let's go together. And let's build a life that's worthy of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we know we long for a life like this. We long for a life that is marked by peace and honor and love and humility and forgiveness and prayer and patience and all of these things. God, we are so thankful and we praise you today because you have invited us to live in that new kind of community. Though we were broken and dead you reconciled us to yourself. And because of this gospel doctrine, we can live a life that honors the gospel. We can have a gospel life, a gospel culture. So God, send your spirit to raise our hearts, to raise our minds and see how many pieces have already fallen into place Fellowship Baptist Church. There are people who are honorable. There are people who genuinely love everyone in their midst. There are people, God, who are humble and forgiving. God, we should be encouraged because our church is part of this new kind of community. But God, also send your spirit because we are so messed up. We're never going to live these things perfectly, and we are thankful, and we worship you this morning, but that is not your expectation. But God, make our wants your wants. Make our actions reminiscent of Jesus' actions, not because we have to, not because we're gospel robots, but because we've been invited in. God, we love you. 
We love you a minuscule amount compared to the great love you have for us. Let that love overflow in us so that we might have a community that looks like this. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his life, for his death and his resurrection. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you don't know Jesus this morning, I'm going to be right down here. I'd love to tell you about him, introduce you. You can be invited into this new kind of community. If you're part of our church and you just want to sit and you want to pray and you want to say, God, use me. God, show me where to serve. God, show me who to honor. I invite you to just sit and pray and ask God to reveal that truth for you. Or maybe you're inspired to stand and sing and say, thank God for a life that is worthy of the gospel. I invite you to stand and praise him for all the great things he has done for us. Let's stand and worship.